0: Female sparrowhawks, wild sparrowhawks are really, uh, a couple of times now I've had a few close shapes with those and and we see them out and about but I remember one time we were out hawking and it wasn't a successful day, we had a couple of flights but we didn't manage to end with anything in the bag and we are walking back and at this time he was just feeding off my fist as we headed back to the car and then uh, something, just a flash of something just literally brushed over him and he baited when something came so close to him And, and then over my shoulder and I was looking around, what was it? Hey,
1: how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Retold podcast. And we are now up to episode 10 of our international series featuring falconers from the UK. And I have to start off, of course, by acknowledging the two falconers who are responsible for making this series happen, being Neil Davies and Simon Tires. And Neil, of course, is one of our media partners, and he is also the editor of Pursuit Falconry and Conservation Magazine. If you haven't already, you need to go to pursuitfalconry.co.uk and check out this awesome publication and subscribe. I highly recommend it. There's always lots of great new content packed into each issue. And Neil just also got done revamping the website and tightening things up a little bit there. So I highly recommend, like I said, going and checking it out. If you haven't already, it's definitely worth your time. And if you haven't gotten your copy of The Specialist Falcon, you can also do that by heading to thespecialistfalcon.com and pick up Simon Tire's new book about his personal approach to lowland game hawking. And there's lots of great information in here about flying Falcons and also using some of the newer technologies in doing so as well, like drones and other things. And you can also get signed copies from the website as well. So definitely go and get your copy. It's a must-have for every Falconer's library and shortly after my time at Neil's came to an end and the Valley Expo was over, it was then time to head up to Simon's for the following week and Neil was nice enough to take me up there and while I was at Simon's, one of the things that I got to do while I was there was go to the game fair for the first time. Simon and his wife Julie were nice enough to take me and I also got to experience my birthday there, which was really cool as well. Getting to check out all kinds of falconry exhibits and uh, vendors and things like that were, were really neat while I was there, along with all kinds of other uh, general hunting things represented, as well as dogs and fly fishing and things like that. It was, it was a fun time. So while I was there, I also managed to sneak in this recording with Naomi, and we actually recorded this in a Jose Sudo and his wife charlotte's uh, rv so you might hear some uh different ambient stuff going on at times possibly gunshots and things like that they were friendly i promise <laughs> but uh at any rate it was uh, it was provided a, a kind of a good atmosphere and, and ambiance for the conversation so i'm gonna go ahead and turn things over to this conversation that i had with naomi and i hope you enjoy it so here we go Okay, well, let's just get right into it so that we can uh, get back to the scalding heat here in just a but, <laughs> Yeah, uh,
0: scalding for this country, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: it's nice to meet you, Naomi, and I appreciate you taking some time to sit and talk with me and kind of tell me how things uh, are with you and your falconry. And um, yeah, so you were here at the uh, game fair with uh, the Project Lugger group, right?
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, so thank you very much for, for having me, and it's a real honor to, to be here. Uh, so yeah, we've been... Exhibiting with Project Lugger this weekend at the game fair, which has been pretty cool. It's quite well, not at all really, it's really hot, but uh, we've <laughs> been out in the arena just now talking a bit about Project Lugger and Lugger Falcons in the Wild and how we're how we're working to conserve them. Sweet.
1: Yeah, I just you just got done with your twenty minute what about roughly twenty minute presentation, right?
0: Yeah, so we've been, thankfully we've been teaming up with some guys, Faith Faith Scott and her team who are flying a few birds here this weekend and they kindly flew their Lugger Falcon whilst I was out there talking a little bit about the species, obviously it's great for people. We get a lot of visiting public coming to these events as well, so it's a little bit of an opportunity for falconry to, to show the public what we do and, and why we do it and the groups that are involved with what we do, so it was a nice opportunity for the public to see a Lugger Falcon and see, see one flying and, and hopefully learn a little bit about more of the conservation work that is actually going on at the moment cool
1: yeah no it's uh anytime you can get any kind of outreach with a lot of the the public especially in a in a big fair like this is is always kind of cool um the more we can teach people about birds of prey and and what they do for the environment and you know how important they really are and incorporate that with with what we do and the fact that The falconers are are so vital to a lot of different types of conservation efforts. I mean, I think it's always worth doing.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think now as well falconry is in the public eye more than it has ever been before and I think really the future of our sport, our art here in the UK and all over the world really but especially here at the moment is really is it going to be hanging in the balance with how the public see falconry and obviously as falconers we all know how important falconry is and falconers are for the conservation, the protection of ecosystems the love of hawks that we share that that ultimately leads to us making sure they're still around for future generations in the wild but it's our job as well to make sure that we translate that to the public and that they understand the good work that is being done.
1: Sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, it's, um, like I said, it's it's one of those things where it's it's always very important to kind of get ahead of any kind of uh, public perception and kind of be at the forefront of that. And that's kind of part of the reason why why we do this is so people can, can hear a lot of the stories about the background of a lot of this stuff and and, um, you know, at least understand why we're so passionate about Mm. it, so.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think uh, passion can tell a lot of words sometimes, and it's important we, as you say, get up there first and and show what this is about. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. So I guess we can go ahead and and start off a little bit here by, um, you know, having you go ahead and and tell us some about how you got into everything and and what your initial experiences were like as a new prospective falconer, and Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, so I, was, I was actually listening to uh, your one of your podcasts this morning coming over and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a lot younger than most of your your guests <laughs> here, so I'm, maybe probably don't have quite so many exciting stories, or certainly not for over such a length of time. Um, my career is still relatively young, relatively new, but I've been working with Birds of Prey now since I was about 14, uh, going on 15, and that was when I first had my first introduction to, to hawks, I suppose. Uh, before then, I came from a, a background, a family who had no context really with with falconry with with birds of prey with any sort of realm of work even outdoors to be honest into a nice suburban home that's where i grew up and falconry wasn't really at all on my radar until i was about 14 years old but i can remember even remember as a kid i can remember us hiding out in the trees up around where our house was trying to spot for buzzards and and that sort of thing and having an interest in wildlife but It wasn't until a little bit later on that i really understood what falconry was and and before then i really didn't have any any idea about the sport and that it existed but i was about 14 yeah going on 15 when i was in school and having to look around for what i might want to do for a career and all i knew is that i was interested in animals and wildlife and that's the sort of thing i wanted to do so the school said okay if you want to do that and get a reasonably well-paid job you should be a vet So to be a vet, you needed work experience. And I started hunting around for some work experience. Found out pretty quickly after my first week in a vet practice that I really didn't like it. (laughs) And it wasn't for me. But uh, I eventually, not long after that, ended up finding, I met someone called Jay, who had a few hawks in his back garden at the time. And uh, he very kindly let me come out flying with one of his Harris hawks. And I just thought, That was the most amazing thing ever. And I just couldn't imagine that I'd lived all my life and been totally unaware of it. And it was almost like at that moment, I suddenly knew what I wanted to live for, what I wanted to do. I knew falconry was going to be in my life in some form or another for for many years to come. So I nagged and nagged and nagged and wouldn't leave him alone until uh, he would let me come down as often as I liked. And I volunteered for a a while, helping him out. And I would come after school on, on weekends, every opportunity I got, and I was very lucky that that sort of led into an opportunity for me to take more of a, a paid role, which eventually turned into to being a director of a, a better price prey centre that we run now. Um, but my real sort of introduction to what real falconry is and, and hunting came part way through that uh, when I started reading and, and researching other books and other falconer stories and discovered that the history of falconry was so broad and so detailed and so expansive here in the UK and I became obsessed with the idea of of being able to have this relationship with, with a hawk and a hunting relationship with a hawk and it was reading books all the time and studying pictures and, and everything I could get my hands on but it wasn't until I was 17 that I came across and had the opportunity to work with a sparrow hawk, and that's really where my falconry career took off from there I suppose.
1: Nice, well so... How many seasons or how many years, I guess you, you could say, uh, total, I mean, have you been working with raptors and, and practicing?
0: Uh, so, total years working with raptors now will be for about eight years now. Eight years now that I've been working with birds of prey, so I'm 22 now, 14 when I started. <laughs>
1: gotcha. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, I'm just turned 39 today. And oh, happy birthday. You know, thank you. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really haven't been doing this super long either, but, I mean, i I just um, got my master license upgrade this this season or this year, I should say, and um, I mean I've only been really practicing for about you know flying for about you know seven eight years or so now myself. Yeah. You know, so I mean I still feel like there's just loads for me to learn and absolutely. And I stuff think too, there but... is
0: there is for all of us, and I also think you know you can I can learn. I've been so privileged to learn a huge amount from some very experienced falconers here. But again, I can also learn a huge amount from from falconers who are just starting out as well. And I think having a connection to both is very important, regardless of of how long you've been practicing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody has a very wide range of experiences when they get into this. And, you know, some people, unfortunately, don't always have the best ones. Some people have great ones. Some people are lucky enough to find um, mentors or people that are willing to help them kind of right off the bat. I mean, being that we don't have quite as many people on, it seems like in your position, especially from over here, I mean, so I mean, just from your perspective over here, I mean, how has your introduction into everything been? What's your experience been like?
0: I mean, I've, you know, obviously listening to these guys and been privileged to be around them and learn from them. And you think back to when a lot of these guys were were starting out in the 60s and the 70s, and there was there was no information really on falconry, and they had to go to great lengths, and the passion really had to be strong, and the dedication had to be strong to find any information. Uh, but I grew up in a in a world and learning in a world where there is an almost unlimited resources everywhere you look. You now we can, we've got a network just simply by going online and logging into a social media group that you can connect with twenty thousand falconers in one group all over the world, and that's just incredible. And then you can a quick go- Google search will take you anywhere. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of good books, and it's all right there at your fingertips. I think I've kind of come into it in a world where there's almost, almost too much, and that you feel like there's no way, not in a million lifetimes, would I ever be able to uh, cover everything that people have written about and talked about and discussed. I think it's just almost overwhelming the amount of information that is there. But then whilst that, of course, is a massive benefit in many cases, there's also an argument to say that maybe it doesn't support falconry, um, coming into falconry in the same way. I mean, it's very difficult to find somebody. And it takes a bit of experience before you can recognise what is trustworthy advice what is the real important information to follow and the learning that you should take finding the right falconers to mentor you and that can be quite challenging when there are so many people involved with birds of prey and in one form or another and
1: yeah i think that's that's a good point because as a young falconer what one of the hardest things is initially i think for a lot of people is just finding the right people like finding the right people to help get you introduced um to learn properly from and you know as someone that has a very limited knowledge base coming in it's so hard to discern you know the the uh, bs from mm. the 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 valid pieces of information and you know the things that are really really important and yeah it's uh, it's worth its weight in gold the experience of, of being able to find decent person let alone a decent group of people to help show you the ropes and all this
0: absolutely and you know having having met and, and worked with with people on, on both ends of the spectrum i suppose um, i can only it can hardly put into words how valuable it is to have people some i could be here all day naming all the people that have helped me out and given me tips and pointers here and there but uh, to have these people who are so generous with their time and so generous with their knowledge uh, really is totally invaluable to the way we practice falconry now and we're very very grateful to have them
1: yeah, yeah, I know for sure. And yeah, I mean, considering there's been books written on the subject, you know, here there and everywhere to some degree since, well, I mean, for that matter, hundreds of years, or hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's both a blessing and a curse the the advent of the accessibility of all these different sources with the internet and yeah, I mean, I I can just like I said, I having gone through it not so long ago myself i totally totally get it and um you know it's just finding the right way and the wrong way to go about getting into all of it it's just so hard
0: yeah definitely definitely and as you say it's a blessing and a curse but i try not to complain too much because i think it's it is amazing it is amazing with the, the power of technology and it, we should be so grateful to all these fantastic falconers before us if you know put their life's work on paper for us to learn from and to read and we've saved i for one certainly have made plenty of mistakes but i've certainly saved myself from a few uh, of reading the works of these guys and the, the legends that they are and the writing they've left behind
1: oh for sure yeah and uh we've we've talked about that with some of the episodes that I've recorded here over this past week already that, yeah, I mean, everybody is going to is going to make mistakes and you just have to learn to live with them and learn from them. And then most importantly, not repeat them yeah. if, if you can. And um, yeah, but I mean, there's so many that are going to be made if you don't have somebody really showing you and really, you know, just telling you where you're screwing up yeah and yeah i mean i think that the biggest the biggest hurdle that a lot of like i said the younger people can can um you know jump or try and figure out how to jump is just yeah just like i said just finding that right person or right Mm. people and and um so i mean who did who were you fortunate enough to to learn primarily from here
0: Oh gosh yeah so there's i mean there's loads of guys and and ladies who who've helped me out massively in my career. I think uh, one name I've got to mention is is Bob Bob Dalton and he's been massive inspiration for me uh, since you know sort of reading his books and I eventually a couple of years ago I decided to just reach out and, and try and contact him and ask if there's any way I could support the, the project. And actually at the time I had a few hoods and, and Bob runs project logo, I should mention. Um but I had a few hoods that, that I've made and I thought, well they weren't now I look back on them, they really weren't that great. But I thought at the time that uh it might be able to help. So I contacted Bob and asked if he might want to be these hoods to sell for raise funds for the project, and and from there onwards we started talking, and I met up with him and had the opportunity to get involved with the project Lugger and since then he's given me a huge amount of advice and pointers, and and huge amounts of opportunity as well, not only to learn more but to meet other falconers as well. So he's been a massive influence in my career so far, and uh, I've also lucky enough to last year I really got in touch with Simon Tyers, uh, who was. Is such a gentleman and an amazing falconer and uh, he was so generous with his time, his knowledge and I definitely bugged him with some really annoying questions like all day last year when I had the privilege to join him Hawking, uh, which was just fantastic to see his falcons doing what they do best and learning from him. So I mean there are countless, I mean Steve Halsall as well, he's been a massive inspiration and a great use of support as well in, in hood making and also in other things as well. So yeah, there are too many names to name and my British Falcons club, local region as well, they've been incredibly helpful all of those guys uh, with me and my falconry so far so yeah we could be here all night if i <laughs> carry on much longer <laughs> no it's it's
1: all good yeah i mean it's um it's always good i mean i i think to having that one primary source or that one primary um you know resource is, is always important so that you have yeah. consistency but you know i mean there whenever you start progressing some finding out how Mm. different guys do things or, or ladies do things and progressing and then kind of taking different bits and pieces here and there and kind of making them your own Yeah, I mean, it's all part of the growing process. Definitely. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah.
0: definitely. And I think as well, you know, we're touching on on guys and girls in the the business as well. I think a massive inspiration for me was Diana Derman Waters, who here in the UK is a bit of a a falconry legend in, in what she's done in her career. But when she started out, that she was... Probably one of two or three female falconers in the whole of the country, and it' just was kind of unheard of to have a have a woman flying a hawk or flying a falcon in the same realms of all of these chaps and uh, she forged an amazing career and remains to be incredibly humble, incredibly kind with her knowledge and and time now and I think being able to get to know her is a massive privilege so there are some amazing people out there really are um who are Incredibly, after all their years of practice, still so generous with their time and their their willingness to to pass on what they've learned to the next generation as well.
1: Yeah, I think we're, that we're really fortunate to have a lot of these people that have been very seasoned and and had a lot of experience. We're fortunate that a lot of them have the attitude that it's kind of their their duty and their I don't know they almost see it as kind of like an obligation in a way to pass yeah. on what they've yeah. what they've yeah, learned definitely. over the years. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, without that, I mean, this, all this would definitely die, you know, without people being willing to pass on information. And I mean, that's how everything, I Mm. mean, not, not just our sport, but how everything in the world has always, you know, been, been passed down. Absolutely. And so, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's our duty to, to carry that forward as well and make sure we do the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, like I said it's, uh, it, you know, like I said, I'm I'm thankful every day for the opportunities that I've that I've had and that, you know, I had people that were willing to, you know, put up with me also, yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, but yeah. So, I mean, are how often do you do these all these different fairs and things over there? That's one thing that I've talked to a few guys about here is that every, uh, the way you guys do all this stuff here and incorporate falconry into a lot of these different fairs and expos and things here in the UK that I mean that's like so foreign to us yeah. like we you know <laughs> it would it probably wouldn't go over super well like in in the U.S. because of the way our system is and how kind of restrictive it yeah, can be sure. but I mean how many of these do you usually do
0: yeah I mean it's a great point I mean out here in the UK as you touched on briefly there Um, our system is not at all restrictive in many respects and and arguably needs to be restricted more. Um, But we, I mean, this year, this is my third major falconry fair that I've attended this year, but there have been four so far that have really been on the high profile. Um, And this is the last one, of the last major one of the year now. So we usually do about three or four every year, depending, obviously, and throughout the pandemic years, there wasn't much going on. But uh, the main, I think what's so important about them, especially, you know, they're not, at the back, you know, look back 20 years, and these events were absolutely massive. And I was talking to to Bob earlier, Bob Dalton, earlier this morning, and he was saying, the last falconry fair that he organised had 85 falconry trade stands, and people would come from the whole country just to be there. Uh, of course, now we have the internet, we have technology, and if you want to to buy a bit of a equipment or a new hood for your hawk, it's a, like a simple Google search, and, and you've got it. You don't need to travel 100 miles to to buy one. Um, so in that sense, that not quite the same as what they used to be but they remain i think incredibly important for falconry here in the UK because they give an opportunity for falconers to come together to socialize to see each other to meet new people an opportunity for young aspiring falconers to to meet Falconers who are very experienced, and to like we we're talking about earlier, and finding the right mentor, it's an amazing opportunity to do that because you're surrounded by groups of people who, who are there because they're respected and because they have found a position within this community. So, in that sense, it's incredibly valuable, and also to to interact with the public as well. I think as we move forward the only way that falconry will have a place in the future here in the uk is by allowing the public in and by allow to by allowing them to understand what we do and by talking to them about what we do and i think in that sense it is is very important that that not just falconry but field sports in general remains very connected and talking to the people who are willingly going to support us
1: yeah no i i agree and um you know that's why you know, where, where we're at, we, uh, oftentimes will get approached to do, you know, an occasional talk or a presentation to like a local scout group or, um, you know, if there's a, uh, you know, some kind of thing going on at a local park or, you know, the bigger thing, sometimes they'll, they'll approach us about organizing, um, some kind of, I don't know, a little bit of a, of a yeah. presentation. a yeah, presentation. Sure. And, uh, yeah, I mean, once again, it's, you know, we, we have to kind of, um, control the narrative in a positive way to yeah. a large degree you yeah. know and and continue to do that but so when when you're whenever you're doing these I mean do you do usually a presentation at each one or are you mainly just here with uh, with project Lugger or
0: so yeah I'm usually here with project Lugger um, yeah. but there are some guys who, who come down and fly their hawks and fly their display birds for the event and personally it's something I'm not very good at or nor is it something that I do I'd much rather fly all of my Hawks on home ground or away from busy showgrounds like this Um, but there are many people who do it very well so uh, that's part of it and obviously that's the thing that, that the public will love to see is the birds flying so that that brings in a lot of people and gives an opportunity to talk about these important topics with it but my role primarily is with project lugger and that's there to speak about lugger falcons and to get people engaged with the conservation work that is happening.
1: Cool. Yeah. I mean, is that your main role with them? I mean, do you hold any other kind of official like, position with them or anything? Or
0: So uh, on paper, I'm the press officer. So that means my job is basically to work on the way that Project Lugger is communicated to the public and make sure that the narrative that we're telling is accurate and also gets people engaged with the work that is happening.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. Well, so yeah, I mean, as far as your, your personal falconry and stuff goes, though, I mean, I've heard from about three or four other people so far that kind of what you've found your little I guess niche in or or whatever so to speak would be uh you know sparrowhawks over here correct
0: yeah yeah I guess so I mean it all sort of happened by accident I I never planned to to fly a sparrowhawk but at the time you know when it all when I got the opportunity, I was 17. uh, So very young and and still pretty early on in in my falconry career. At this point, I knew what falconry was and I was really eager, really keen to learn more and sort of waiting for that opportunity to come. But so obviously here in this country the birds that we have, we they're not wild taken, they're all bred in captivity and that means that we have to keep them for the term of their life so having a falconry hawk can be a 20 plus year commitment and at this time I was wise enough to know that as desperate as I was to get started I probably needed to wait until I had all everything in the right place before I did um that being said uh, not long after that a guy another falconer uh, in the area came down and he had he had two muskets so two of the male sparrowhawk and one female and they were—they weren't—they were supposedly imprinted, but they were a little bit too old, really. And as you probably know, with with the and it'd be the same same for your sharp-shinned hawks. You know, if you don't get it early on, then they can be a bit of a handful. So the imprinting process, certainly, in my opinion, does does benefit the general training and handling of these hawks. But uh, when this guy, this chap, bought down three hawks, they were a little nervous, quite skittish. And uh, they had some feather damage. And one of the muskets that I picked up, the foot that I picked him up on my fist, he actually had a broken talon as well. But at the time I was just so obsessed with how, beautiful these hawks were. It's so the first time I'd actually held a sparrow hawk and seen one in such close proximity. And I thought, this is just amazing. I've never seen anything more beautiful than this. And I was so obsessed by how how thin their legs were, the thin toes and the bird catching feet. And obviously you're looking at this hawk, which is just so well renowned for the sheer speed and agility and maneuverability. And I thought, this is amazing. At the time I was reading um, Jack Mavicudato, Hawk for a Bush, uh, which was arguably the best book that's been written on ossipators and sparrowhawks and uh, I hope I don't lose any friends by saying that but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the one of the best books certainly in my opinion um, so I was totally hooked on this species and then actually having being able to hold one was just amazing so um, I looked up at the falconer who bought them down and said this one's missing a talon and he sort of sighed and went oh no and I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a real trouble trying to rehome them and then I just thought <gasps> I'll fly him (laughs) without really thinking too much at the time about it. I was 17 and I thought, this is amazing. So I said, I'll fly him. And uh, that's kind of where it started. So at the time, I was still uh, working quite closely with with Jay, who helped me out in my very early stages and and gave me a huge amount of opportunity in the early stages of of my career. And uh, he, he said, yeah, go for it keep this hawk so uh, we kept the this little musket which which I named Rufus shortly later because I, I liked the idea of obviously the mature musket having that beautiful red breast and that, that was something I was kind of hoping that we would get to see in the future <laughs> and I can remember you know the next day after having this hawk I, I was, wasn't driving at this stage so I cycled like three four miles early in the morning and I think it just as it was getting light so I could sit there and, and start manning this hawk first thing in the morning and I carried it everywhere and I just did absolutely everything I could to try and make it as tame as possible. Obviously, I have my hands full because muskets are notoriously difficult, especially if they've missed that imprinting stage. This this musket was particularly wild at the time and a bit of a handful, but I was just so thrilled and and loving the idea of, of having a hawk. Um, but looking back on it now, now going back with the knowledge I have today, back then I didn't have the experience, the knowledge and everything I have now to make a successful first season. And it was, you know, we we got through the first season, we caught a couple of things, but it was nothing spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, of course, in this first season, you had a really damaged train. Um, or pretty much all of his tail feathers were, were damaged, and I didn't have any malted tail feathers from another musket, so I actually used malted jackdaw feathers. <laughs> I can remember imping this whole tail with a jackdaw tail uh, to get him started. So for the first year, he was kind of, you know, jackdaw tail, a little bit nervous and uh, a little bit all over the place not the best falconry in the world but we did it you know we loved it we got out in the field every single day several hours every single day and and, you know we tried our best at getting the best out of the hawk we could and at the time I was just in the evenings reading and studying as much as I could to try and learn more and and do better Um, and then over the his first malting period I kind of thought right we need to up our game a little bit here and have a have a bit of a better season going forward so I worked really hard to try and acquire some some better land and spoke to like I think I must have sent something like 35 45 letters out to to landowners and and just trying to, to get in touch with someone I think probably like three or four got back and I was very fortunate to find um, a really brilliant farm which was perfect for what we what we needed so uh, from then on uh, the next season was much better and the following season better still and uh, now we've had we've had four seasons together now so yeah so far so good and We're working on primarily Blackbird being our quarry of choice, which is licensed here in the UK. We have to have a license for it. So really in in recent, the last two seasons or so, that's been the the focus. And that's been what the flights we've been looking for, which has, you don't catch many, you don't catch many with a musket. And uh, that's never the goal is to catch a lot, but just to see that capability of the hawk and to have the beauty of the flight. Yeah,
1: no, that's awesome. Like I said, like we were talking a little bit ago that, I mean... You know the a uh, very close similar, you know species that that we have of course is the is a sharp mm. hawk, and we usually always have guys that'll that'll take some as as IAS's each year and it's just it's so hard with the uh, all the dangers that we have where where we hunt especially too to keep one you know uh, unfortunately keep one going yeah and, and it seems like something tragic always happens with them they for whatever reason, they are just like prone to something unfortunate happening. Yeah, and everything from, you know, flying into to windows to, you know, just, I mean, like I said, having any kind of leg scale damage. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many challenges with, with such a small and uh, very fragile species. So anyone that can keep something very comfortable in the form of like you know a sparrowhawk alive over the span of and and you know when especially whenever they're continually hunting them over the span of a handful of seasons like that I mean that's that's pretty admirable really
0: well thank you (laughs) yeah well I mean
1: I mean it's 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 just the truth I mean I don't I don't know how many like how many days per week do you hunt and like what what other kind of of um environmental hazards do you have where you hunt that you have to deal with
0: yeah great question i was just thinking then when you were talking about it there have been so many close shaves and i thought oh man we're so lucky that that didn't end terribly and that sometimes you get to the point we think right okay that was actually scary enough that we're just going to end the hawking trip there and we're just going to go home um but I think female sparrowhawks, wild sparrowhawks, are really, uh, a couple of times now I've had a few close shaves with those and, and we see them out and about. But I remember one time we were out hawking and it wasn't a successful day. We had a couple of flights, but we didn't manage to end with anything in the bag. And we're walking back and at this time he was just feeding off my fist as we headed back to the car. And then uh, something, just a flash of something just literally brushed over him and he baited when something came so close to him and, and then over my shoulder and I was looking around, what was it? I see this wild female sparrowhawk flying up to the up into the field and I think wow you know he was on my fist and right beside me and then this female sparrowhawk typically very shy natured hawk so was bold enough to to almost swipe him off the fist so that was a little bit scary um, but I mean certainly here compared to to you guys in the states we probably have a fewer uh, predators uh, fewer birds of prey who might be threatening to to sparrowhawks but pretty much wherever you go in this country one of the biggest problems or the biggest threats when you're flying a sparrowhawk is fencing and it doesn't matter where you go in the UK unless, unless you are exceptionally lucky even some of the best, best uh, hunting grounds there will still be fences and there'll still be barbed wire there'll still be sheep fencing every now and again and uh, the hawks can have accidents in there. and I've had a couple of close shaves fortunately nothing that's been too serious but because well, they leave like literally as you probably know no room for error you know I've seen my musket fly through a hedge and two fences like they weren't there and you just you, you hear the wire sometimes, the fence snag, and you just you have yeah. this horrible feeling. Um, but it's so difficult to to avoid it, especially if they have a really long flight. And I found as we went on, I mean, in the early stages, he wouldn't be that committed, and he would go only for the stuff in, in short range. But as we went on, he would have he would take really long flights, especially if he thought it was a spe- you know a blackbird or a thrush or something he had a chance at. Uh, he would go across two fields sometimes, and uh, one time. We were exploring, uh, this is kind of a strange story, we were exploring the edge of a, a permission, a farmland that I was hunting on and I uh, hadn't been hawking there too much, um, but we were just checking it out. And actually I'll tell you two stories because there's a really funny one that happened here. We were walking through all this fern, all this bracken, and it was kind of up to my knees, I was just walking through it, and then this rabbit started moving through the bracken a few feet in front of us and he, at the time, you know, when you're hawking sparrowhawks, every, everything happens so quickly, And at this stage, I was thinking, trust the hawk, because so many times you hold the hawk back and you see the most perfect flight just go past. Um, So I'm thinking, trust the hawk, and I, I let him fly. And then I quickly realised it was a rabbit, but he flew at this rabbit uh, for <laughs> several yards before the rabbit kind of comes out of the bracken and he sees what he's dealing with and thought, ah, actually, maybe not. But <laughs> it was pretty crazy that he even thought about it. But at this anyway, the same patch. I think it could have even been the same day or certainly around the same time. Uh, we're walking a little further and uh, he he took a flight on a blackbird and chased it across. You know, Way down this field, and it's super fast. And that's you know what I love about hawking these birds is the speed and the maneuverability. You just it's gone, and it feels like when you're watching, it, it almost feels like it's for quite a long time, but it's probably like two seconds, and they're gone out of the field at high speed. And I can just hear the sound of his bell, um, disappearing off into the distance, and he soon was out of sight. So um, then you just, I just heard this thud, and I thought, what was that? That didn't sound good. So um, I quickly run up to him and run after, and I can see the blackbird making up. to covering trees further down and and I know that there's obviously no hawk in pursuit, so I'm thinking what's gone on? And he'd gone all the way down to the bottom of the next field and little did I know there was this really quiet little cycle path going down. And that's one thing we have a lot of here, a lot of the certainly in the southwest of England where, where I'm hawking, is there a lot of Footpaths, and it's difficult to find a good farm or good site, good area of land where there are no footpaths and no bridleways or anything. But there was this little cycle path going down, and uh, there was a bit of breeze block concrete by the side, and he'd just gone into a hedge and smacked into this breeze block concrete and was just sitting by the side of the stone so that was obviously really scary I saw him and I thought oh is he going to be alive is he going to be alive Fortunately, he was okay and had to go back and take it steady bring his condition up slowly and a bit of organ meat and fluid and he was absolutely fine we were out hawking two days later but that was a pretty close shave
1: yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's amazing exhibitors in general just have this tunnel vision about yeah. them, and yeah. once they see something they want to go after the, everything else, it, it they, there's no other consideration, and Definitely, it's yeah. it's like they, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, it's amazing how just laser focused they can be, and mm. yeah, I mean, it seems like it's even worse the small the smaller <laughs> yeah. they get too, but yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I had similar issues with with sharpshin that I flew, and and um, I mean, there's so many guys that that I know that have also lost sharpshins, unfortunately, just, uh, other, you know, it's like, you know, the whole Lemony Snicket series of unfortunate yeah. events. It's yeah, like, it, just think of a way and yeah. it's like it, it happens. But, uh, what, uh, out of curiosity is, is your husbandry like, what, what are you using at home to you know maintain and you know tether and and all that kind of stuff I'm just curious about that too
0: yeah sure so um, I've sort of tried various different things and ended up working out a system which which works quite well for us now Um, so during the hunting season when he's flying I use like a a normal loop perch and I think the key thing for it's often we get a lot of people very scared about keeping sparrowhawks in the winter and know what happens when it gets really cold when it gets below freezing and uh, generally speaking and it's quite advice to give, and I don't want to get it misinterpreted. But generally, in the winter, you're okay. If it gets really crazy temperatures, like we very rarely, very rarely see anything below minus two or three. But the key thing you have to make sure is that you're away from that prevailing wind, you're away from extreme weather, and they're off the ground. So uh, we're I'm very lucky. We have like a nice covered barn area, so he can be in a hawk house there, where he's comfortably off the ground, comfortably away from wind, rain, any extreme weather. Of course, if you don't have that luxury in the winter then you do have to bring them inside pretty yeah. much all the time quick,
1: quick reminder to people too not to cut you off but yeah whenever you say minus one to two just re- uh, yeah d- gotta remind, got to remind remind people that it's celsius <laughs> not not fahrenheit yeah, anyway yeah, keep going yeah, keep going yeah, keep going. Sorry. yeah don't, don't let me sidetrack um, you but yeah
0: going. yeah of course yeah, it's very different out there yeah um but yeah so it never really gets that cold where we are but of course you do have to watch it and i always every single day i record daytime temperature and nighttime temperature with my diary for for hawking and make sure that that's that's recorded and make sure that we we're ma- we're on top of the the temperature and how that might affect them and uh, then throughout his off season so when he's molting or when he's not flying he'll be free lofted and i made a mistake actually in the first after my first season one of the big mistakes i made was uh was thinking okay i'm going to give him a nice big aviary then he can just chill out in here so put him in a big aviary totally bad totally silly mistake and I didn't think it was too big but I learned pretty quickly that was the the bad (laughs) thing to do and then the next day he was back out of there fortunately with a with a small bruise and a sear but that did heal up pretty fast but uh yeah much more comfortable in a small sized aviary over the summer and uh uh yeah and that's been it since really but I think the key thing with with sparrowhawks instead of it can be finicky, you know, just keeping them alive and keeping the husbandry up to standard. But I think the key thing is really to just understand that digestive biology and understand why you need to feed them at certain times, what food you need to feed them, how you need to operate that uh, into your daily routine and, and what temperatures are going to affect them, what their routine and how that's going to work on them. So I think kind of understanding the science behind it in a way makes it really simple.
1: Well, wow, that's really interesting because, I mean, most of the guys in the U.S., I mean, if, if you have a, a micro of any kind, whether it be a Kestrel, Sharpie, whatever, I mean, pretty much kept indoors, yeah. you know, predominantly all yeah. the time, you know. So that, that's – I mean, that's kind of how we have to do it a lot. And so define out that you're actually keeping yours you know not only not only that but but free lofted and and things i mean, that's that's really interesting
0: yeah and i think to be honest it really has to be taken case by case this works for me it works in our with setup it works yeah. with the climate we have here you know it you've got to look at what you have and they mm-hmm. can be really when they you've got to remember that when you're flying a, a hawk like this they are flying on the edge so if you have got a climate or a setup or whatever you might have whether that be where you keep your Hawk, whether it's inside or outside if you've got some weather or just the way that you've designed your your hawk house your aviaries whatever it is you're housing them in that is going to affect them and uh, you are working on a knife edge here you haven't got room to play with so you need to be pretty switched on about it but um, it works for me and uh, the key thing is i think is reading and understanding the hawk and when you understand the hawk you can modify the environment to suit
1: yeah no i think yeah very good point and and yeah i mean every every bird, every, every person's case is, is going to be different for yeah, sure. Definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, just like, you know, in a, in a place <laughs> that's got a, a more, uh, warmer year round climate and stuff, it's going to be a lot more practical to do that as, you know, as opposed to say, you know, super far North or, you know, whatever, with much colder climate. Yeah. It all, I mean, it all sounds like common sense type stuff, but you know, to people starting out, as we both know, it's oftentimes not. So yeah, that's it. But no, that that's really interesting. And as far as like um as far as the equipment and stuff, I mean, you still use grommets in your anklets? I mean, do you do you use braided or leather jesses or
0: Yeah, so yeah, I've tried a bit of everything, but uh I use a traditional Almiri anklet, something quite wide obviously scale damage is, is a threat with with these hawks you have to make sure that you're covering plenty of the tarsus and uh, normal normal eyelets brass eyelets that you would use just as small a size as you can find mm-hmm. and then nowadays all of my hawks i use braided equipment with i just think i don't think i'd ever go back to leather um the braided is just so much stronger and so much safer to use so yeah and then a, a small smaller swivel you can find <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah, that's uh that's what I use for him.
1: Well, cool. Yeah, no, I'm like I said, it's uh, it, it's, it's got to be, you know, the just interesting having, I don't know that that kind of setup. Like I said, I mean, it's something that we don't we don't really, especially for micros, use very often. You know, in the states, I mean, pretty much, like my kestrel, for example, stays indoors with me on a on a shelf perch. Mm. Two completely different species. Two completely different you know, the circumstances and whatever. But I mean, there's, there's other guys that I know that have more of a, um, um, I don't know, either like a bow perch type setup or stuff where they have kept Sharpies and stuff in the house also. But I know some guys that I know have kept theirs in uh, you know, a, a heated, you know, garage type of type of thing or whatever, but, but yeah, no, I mean, I can see it being a lot more practical, you know, where, where we are, especially in the off season where you're keeping them fat and mm. stuff, but and they're not on that knife edge all the time, but, yeah. but no, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that. And, um, I also appreciate your transparency and admitting to the mistake and learning from <laughs> it and stuff too, because yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's oftentimes, I think a lot of, a lot of guys that, and a lot of girls that get into this sport that maybe aren't quite as forthcoming about, you know, yeah. some of that. And oh, I, I think, mean, yeah. yes,
0: I mean, we've all, We've all been there where we've made a mistake and we think you know I hope nobody finds out about this but as I've gone <laughs> as I've gone through my own career I think you know the, the the best falconers I know and the the greatest falconers I know are very humble about the mistakes they've made and I think it's the only way we can learn and we can help others learn but we all make them we are human but I think you know as long as you move forward from it you recognize where you can Better, I think it's a really important part of of how we communicate.
1: Well, yeah, and as we all know, we don't have to learn always from our own mistakes. We can learn from other mistakes, other people's mistakes too. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so I'm I'm also kind of I've also come to understand that um, you're going to be kind of doing more of the fair and expo event type scouting and stuff for for nafa too right Is that...
0: yeah so that's an amazing opportunity that uh, simon tires was so kind to get in touch with me last year or was it towards the end of last year i think or maybe earlier this year and uh, asked if i would like the opportunity to do some do a bit of article writing for Hawk Chalk and for for Nafa, uh, which was just an amazing opportunity and I was definitely never going to turn that down. Um, so I had the fantastic opportunity to just be put quite recently be put in touch with with Dan Milner's, and uh, he seems a really nice guy. So I'm really looking forward to working with him a bit going forward and and trying to share some stories from from our falconry expos and our events here in the UK and, and how it benefits our own falconry communities and hopefully sharing that with you guys in the states. Sweet,
1: yeah. No, I mean, and that's why I was so happy to to have the opportunity to come out and and do this as well. Is because I mean, I I think that every country has has earned the opportunity to to have a voice, whether it be in printed or recorded format or or whatever. I I think that the more we can understand about everyone else's falconry and how it affects them, and and um, you know, all the the different issues that that they face and I mean, the more understanding that we can all have mutually across the world with each other, I mean, I think that's you know the better off that we're going to be.
0: Definitely, it's the way yeah. forward for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, do you have any other um cool hunting stories or particular oh, stories about you know birds that you would like to to share? I mean, is there any other bird <laughs> that has impacted you as much as the the sparrow hawk has? Or
0: I think you know I think my connection to to falconry moving forward i think i've worked as i mentioned briefly earlier my my day job is running a bird of prey center and a big part of my work there is is rehabilitating wild raptors and we see that quite a lot and uh, falconry has a big connection with that with uh, as you probably know injured birds of prey injured raptors who need a bit of a helping hand to reintroduce themselves back into the wild and of course young hawks as well so falconry is in many cases, the only option to get that level of understanding between hawk and hawk and falconer to know that they are ready to survive independently in the wild, and I think that's kind of where my career is moving in that sense or my falconry journey is moving that that's where a lot of falconry opportunities are coming for me and uh, certainly at the moment I'm working with sparrowhawks a lot and I also do a lot of kestrels and I absolutely love that. I think my big dream for the future one day will be to, to fly and to hunt a peregrine falcon when the opportunity comes and when I have the knowledge, experience, time and land to do it properly. Uh, that's a big dream and something that I'd love to do in the future. But I think at the moment, sparrowhawks are definitely one of my absolute favourite species to fly and and hunt with the opportunities that I have and the facilities and resources I have at the moment. So I'm loving that. And uh, hopefully as we come, we're right in the middle now of the of the busy season for rehabilitation. So we see a lot of young hawks coming through who are struggling and who maybe haven't got the best start that they needed. So that's always a privilege. It's always a privilege to work, obviously, in most cases under licence or under approval from CITES, which is the, the governing body we have here, um, for that sort of work. It is amazing to be able to get that close and to work with a raptor that is wild and uh to hopefully to see them and to sit back and to watch them hunting independently eventually after your falconry journey together is uh something very special i'm kind of close to what you guys have in the states of course um so that's something that's pretty special hopefully i'll get to do a little bit more of coming forward in nice. the next few years
1: nice nice yeah no it's um like i said you know i i have uh, a pretty decent amount of respect for the people that that you know, like to take on all the different avenues of, of um, whether it be from, you know, education to the, the rehabilitation side. And I mean, if, if you are able to be that ingrained in it all, and that's obviously to what you do for a living, then, then I'll, the more power to you you know i'm i'm pulled so many different directions i wish i could do more in, <laughs> in some but I, but my unfortunately uh my only other avenue a lot of times is just to sit down and and talk to people in a microphone and and uh <laughs> oh
0: well you're underselling it this is this is so important and it's reaching so many people so well yeah i, I appreciate don't it don't undersell you know. yourself <laughs> oh no
1: I'm, I'm not that important it's fine no
0: no no one day we'll be the other side someone on the other side of the microphone for you perhaps <laughs> yeah
1: well we we shall see we shall see, but, um, no, I think it's, it's go It's a good time to go ahead. And, um, yeah, I think it's a good time to go ahead and kind of end on a, a final note of just, um, you know, what I've been asking people a lot recently is, um, I mean, do you, do they have any pearls of wisdom or bits of knowledge or, um, advice that they'd like to, to pass on to other generations coming in or people that are, um, thinking about getting into the sport and, um, you know, I mean, if they have any little, Little nuggets, little pearls of wisdom if they'd like to pass on.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think my career is so short that uh, hopefully the best pearl of wisdom i will find in the years to come and uh certainly haven't got as many years of experience to reflect on but i think maybe the best thing i could say is that your attitude will really determine your altitude in this sport and uh quite literally sometimes but really the effort that you put in and the commitment that you put into learning and just continuing to develop yourself as a falconer that will see you go far
1: nice nice yeah no it's um yeah i, th- I think that's something else too that um doesn't get discussed or I'm maybe it does, but I don't think it can ever be discussed enough that, yeah, I mean, it's the whole, you can, uh, you can attract a lot more bees with, with honey type of saying, you know, I mean, if you, if you go in with the right attitude and the right amount of determination and, and, um, willpower and and, and just, and just willingness to, uh, yeah, to, just to be determined enough to to see things through i think a lot of people recognize that and it resonates with them and you're a lot more likely to get a lot more opportunities that way than if you come in with you know uh, the wrong attitude yeah yeah definitely <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah. Yeah, yeah well no i mean uh is there anything else that you want to um you know share or um you know like um i know we we had bob on uh previously here i mean is, is there anything else that you would like to share about the project lugger or anything else that you're involved in or
0: Oh, man, I think uh, Bob's probably nicked all the best stories for Project Lugger before I came here. But, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the work that he's put in over the last five years has been amazing. And uh, it's incredible to see someone's falconry career. Uh, I mean, there's so many great falconers, so many great falconers in the UK who've had really long careers. And it's incredible to see Bob put that experience into something that is really going to last generations and uh, for Lugger Falcons and for falconers alike. And the work that's been done When we think about a small group of people, Bob, and a small group of people here in the UK that is actually working as we speak right now, bricks are literally being laid on the ground in Pakistan to make change and build this research center for wild lugger falcons. So there is amazing work going on way beyond what we're we're seeing right before our eyes, which is quite incredible, really.
1: Awesome. Well, like I said, thank you so much for sitting here in a, in a hot RV on a hot day outside and, uh, giving me some of your time and, um, yeah, just, just being willing to have a conversation and share some of your uh, experiences and, uh, and stories. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really appreciative of, of the, of the Sparrowhawkins site too, because I mean, in the States too, we're, um, there's not a whole lot of guys that, that breed them. There's not a, a lot of opportunity for us to fly that particular species. Once again, the closest thing we have are, our, you know, sharp shins and Cooper's hawks and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that, you know, that unfortunately they're, you know, they're, they can be a little, a little pricey, you know, for yeah, us. So, yeah. I mean, it's the, the one thing that, that always kind of makes me a little scared to, to look into one anymore is just knowing that, um, that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it can be pretty pricey for the potential for uh, for Cooper's Hawk food or something. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely yeah. very different here. Yeah, But uh, and I was, someone actually on uh, Instagram messaged me, and they were like, from from the States, like, oh, it's amazing that you fly a sparrowhawk. And I say, it's not that amazing. There are lots of brilliant sparrowhawk uh, falconers here in the UK, and, and, and uh, to be honest, I have, yeah. whilst it's been a lot of hard work there's also a big element of luck to be able to keep a, a sparrowhawk flying well over several seasons because as we mentioned earlier literally anything can happen when you're out in the field and that's the risk you decide to take every single day when you go hawking so yeah. anything can happen
1: don't sell yourself short either you know it takes a lot of skill as well but uh but once again i appreciate your time and uh thank yeah you. let's let's uh let's talk again soon
0: amazing i'd love to thank you very much for having me all right thank you cheers